There is a story, and I really hope it's true, about W.C. Fields. Some of you of a certain age may have no idea who I'm talking about. But W.C. Fields was famously fond of excess, especially in the areas of gin and mistresses. And he was spied one day toward the end of his life by journalist Gene Fowler. Fields was in his garden, thumbing through a Bible. Bill, what are you doing reading the Bible? Asked Fowler. Fields famously replied, looking for loopholes. We thought of that story as we were reading uh, this Luke's version of the Good Samaritan because it starts out with a lawyer who is coming to test Jesus and says to him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, being a good rabbi, answers his question with a question. What does the Torah say? How do you interpret it? And the man gives the perfect answer. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is God, the Lord is one. It comes from the Shema. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and all your might. And then he adds on, and your neighbor as yourself. And everyone around him must have thought, ooh, A plus, good answer. But just like W.C. Fields, This guy also does not want an answer to mess up a perfectly comfortable life. He, too, is looking for loopholes. He says, um, yeah, Jesus, but like, um, who exactly is my neighbor? Hoping the answer will be, Oh, you know, that, that lovely pe- person who, uh, who, who, who lives nearby and is really nice to you and you like and he lets you borrow his lawnmower. Instead, Jesus gives what is arguably his best-known parable of the so-called Good Samaritan, the familiarity of which is both its power and its weakness. The original hearers would have heard this story as being scandalous. We hear it now and we're like, well, the priest and the Levite walked by, but of course the Samaritan stops. Samaritans are good, right? We've, we're so There's steeped. even a club. We're so steeped in the story of the Good Samaritan. This morning I was at the dog park with our dog Toby and one of the women there said to me, oh, so what are you talking about this morning at church? And I said, the Good Samaritan. She said, oh, okay. Like she knew, she, she had it. Blah, blah, blah. We want to dig into the story a little bit to look at what it was that would have surprised people in Jesus' day and certainly would have surprised this lawyer who's asking Jesus questions. First, we need a quick history lesson. By the standards of Jewish folk in Jerusalem in Jesus' day, the Samaritans were a bastard race. Remember from other history lessons that right after King Solomon's reign, the Holy Land split 
into two kingdoms, north and south. The northern kingdom of Israel was based in a city called Samaria. And the southern kingdom of Judah was based in Jerusalem. Now Judah in the south always felt that Samaria in the north, they felt that Israel was um, overly cosmopolitan, too uncritically receptive to foreign influences, a prejudice that was powerfully reinforced by readings like we heard from Isaiah, I'm from Amos today, who told the northern kingdom, I am setting a plumb line before y'all, and really reinforced in the year 722 BCE, when Assyria, who was the local imperialist bully of the day, came through and bulldozed Samaria. And the folks in Judea said, see, God agrees with us. <laughs> like you do when someone that you don't agree with gets smitten. So the empire of Assyria deported most of the Samaritan Israelites into exile. And they disappeared from history. If you've ever heard the term, the, the ten lost tribes of Israel, this is them. They got dispersed all over the ancient Near East and lost their identity as people of God. Only the poor, uh, tenant farmers, and the like were permitted to stay behind on the land. And from a Judean point of view, the Samaritans got even worse after they got exiled. The ones who stayed married the, Mes- the Mesopotamian refugees that were brought in to replace the Israelite population. And they got married and they had kids and they integrated all the different kinds of lifestyles and beliefs. And uh, they integrated alien religions into their what was considered ersatz Judaism by the southern kingdom. The things that really got the southern kingdom upset was that Samaritans still called themselves children of Abraham. They still claimed to follow the law of Moses. From Jerusalem's perspective, the Samaritans did Judaism wrong. They worshipped wrong. They were religious mongrels. Jewish folk in Jesus' day hated these people, not only because they were wrong, but they claimed to be God's true people. Boo, hiss, Samaritans, blah. And so when Jesus talks about the Samaritans stopping and being the neighbor to this person who's beat up, this is, Jesus is lifting up someone who is despised, who is other. Samaritan was not synonymous with good for those hearers. And so we want to try a thought experiment this morning. Think about who is your Samaritan? This won't, hopefully this will not happen, but if it happened that on your way home from church today, you were beaten up and robbed and left for dead out on Mass Ave. Could, could happen. I'm just saying. But hopefully it won't. <laughs> Who's the person that you would least want to open your eyes and see bending over you to offer help? How would Luke write that character for you? Would it be something like, And Liz Warren came up the road in her hoodie and her jogging shoes and with her golden retriever. That might not be a problem for most of this congregation. Okay, how about 
And Donald Trump came swaggering up the road, his red tie and his fluorescent hair flowing gently, swaying in the evening breeze. Or what about a tobacco lobbyist? A QAnon fanatic. Someone who's homeless. A white cop with a surly attitude. A black teen with a sharp mouth. How about the jerk who cut you off in traffic on the way to church? What about your ex-husband or ex-wife? The guy in the Black Lives Matters t-shirt. Or the other guy in the MAGA hat. Imagine Jesus' parable with that person in the role of Samaritan and see if it changes a bit for you. Are you feeling a little uncomfortable yet? I am. And so was the guy who was testing Jesus, looking for loopholes. Because Jesus then kind of has a drop-the-mic moment when he looks at him and says, So, which one of these three, in your opinion, was the neighbor to the traveler who fell in with the robbers? And he answers, the one who showed compassion. (laughs) And I'm guessing he said it in a really quiet voice. Because he knew it was true, but he hated to say it out loud. He couldn't even say the word Samaritan. Right. Right. He just said the one who showed compassion. The one who showed compassion. And then Jesus adds, go and do the same. And I imagine this man maybe flinched, at least inside, if not outside. Because he understood what Jesus was teaching him and also teaching the crowds. He was being called to be radically compassionate toward everyone, regardless of his own preferences. Excuse me. This is where you see, for the original hearers, the Good Samaritan story had teeth. It hurt the people who originally heard it. It it woke them up. It woke them up. But I want to take a second deep dive. And that's into the word that's translated compassion or mercy in some translations. Compassion and mercy in a biblical sense doesn't mean being nice. The Greek word that Luke uses is splagnizomai. It's an ugly word, splagnizomai. And it it means... uh, the, the yearning of one's bowels, so maybe splagnizomai is exactly the right way to, to describe that. The Hebrew equivalent is a little more lovely, rakum, which was, is related to rachem, which is the word for womb. So in Hebrew, compassion is literally womb love. These are deep, physical, literally deep in our guts. Jeremiah famously says, oh, the writhing of my bowels, when he describes the emotion he feels for the doomed people of Jerusalem. These are emotions rooted deep in our bodies. 
And, and we get that, even as moderns. We, we know how, that feeling, that how, how, how compassion is sometimes a, a physical sensation. We can feel it like a gut punch. Or that roiling inside that doesn't go away. I remember back in 2007 when I was at a meditation retreat with Thich Nhat Hanh, the Zen master. Um, it's here in Massachusetts at Stonehill College. Um, speaking to the thousand of us who were there, we were literally sitting at his feet. He was up on a little bit of a platform and we were all on cushions sitting on the floor in this large hall. And he spoke to us uh, so quietly and wisely and with simple illustrations. And I remember thinking, I bet this is what it was like listening to Jesus. And I remember Han speaking about how once when he was putting up a picture, he struck his thumb with a hammer. He sort of winked at us and said, I wasn't being very mindful about my hammer use. And then he said to us, what do you think my other hand did when I hit my thumb? Do you think it yelled at my thumb or told it why, asked it why it didn't get out of the way? Did it blame and scold? He said, no, my other hand immediately dropped the hammer and wrapped itself around my thumb to comfort it. Because when one part hurts, all parts hurt. He went on to say, this is our natural connection to one another. We recognize another's hurt as our own, and we reach out in compassion. I've never forgotten that illustration. Which is the sign of a good parable. It is. The image of womb love calls to mind, of course, a mother and child. It also speaks to the connection between each of us as fellow human beings. Not just to those who bore us into the world, but with each other because we have all come from a womb. And ultimately, we come from the womb of God. We people of faith often say that everyone is a child of God. In today's context, we are all children of the same divine womb. Jesus' parable says that our compassion, our womb love must extend to all people because all are children of God. All carry the imago dei, the image of God within them and upon them. And when one hurts, all hurt. The hard part, of course, is that there are a lot of these fellow children of God that I just don't like very much. And that makes it not easy to deal with. Right. Yeah, that is, so, um, so I look for wisdom anywhere I can find it to work through that issue. And this week I found it in the New York Times. Lane Lambert sent us an op-ed that Anne Lamott had put in the paper on Friday. Her op-ed was written in response to the Supreme Court ruling last week about praying in public for a coach praying on the 50-yard line at a football game. And she makes it clear in her article that she does not approve of what she called sanctimonious public prayer. 
And then she goes on to say that, in fact, she is a person of daily prayer, often private prayer. Every morning, every evening, all day long, she goes on to talk about the the place of prayer in her life of faith. And she wrote, Anne Lamott is so honest. She wrote, I pray to be more like Jesus with his crazy compassion and reckless love. Some days go better than others. And then she wrote, I pray to remember that God loves Marjorie Taylor Greene exactly as much as God loves my grandson. And is a progressive activist, if you hadn't figured that out. Because God loves, period. God sees beyond each person's awfulness to each person's need. God loves them as is. And then Anne writes, God is better at this than I am. And a lot better at it than I am. But if you were wondering who Anne Lamott would put in the Samaritan category (laughs) if she got beat up on Mass Ave, it's Marjorie Taylor Greene. And in her prayer, she asks to remember that God loves even this person she can't stand. Because remembering that God loves that person opens the door to having compassion for them. Now, note that Anne didn't mention actually praying to love Marjorie Taylor Greene herself. That's the second step, but you have to start somewhere. Remembering that God loves someone that you think is a jerk is a good way of remembering that we are all beloved children of God, even the ones that you don't like and even the ones who don't like you. It's the first step on the road toward compassion. We're sure it's not news to you that compassion seems to be in desperately short supply in our country. The recent Supreme Court decisions, the new laws that are being passed down by some state legislators, comments from any number of fundamentalist Christian personalities seem to be completely devoid of anything like compassion. Compassion for women, for the poor, for creation, for victims of gun violence, for victims of corporate greed and nationalistic bullying, Compassion seems to be in short supply. I keep hearing over and over, whether it's in the narthex of the church or at the dog park or even strangers walking down the street, asking, how do we change the conversation in this country? Well, to borrow from Jesus direction of his parable today, and to borrow from some words from Gandhi, our calling is to be the change in the world you wish to see, to be the change. If we want to witness more compassion, we need to start living it ourselves. I shouldn't use the plural there. I need to remember, I need to start living it myself. And a key step 
is to pray to remember that God loves even those folk that I have a problem with. On the way to being able to actually pray for them. Or even pray to love them. It opens us up. In a moment that often encourages us to stay closed off from each other, prayer, the power of prayer, breaks through the emotional walls we put up that separate us one from another. It picks us up and sets us on the road to compassion. So there is one other line in that Anne Lamott article that I want to share with you this morning. She talks about how when she was first in recovery from drinking and drug addiction and going to 12-step meetings, she met a gentleman there who'd been in the program longer than she, who was also working on his sobriety like you do every day. And he told her that when he'd come into, he he told her that he had come into recovery as a hotshot, but other sober men had helped him work his way up to servant. He started out as a hotshot, but other folks helped him work his way up to servant. That's as good a one-line summation of the Good Samaritan parable as I think I've ever seen. A traveler was on his way uh, to Jericho and was beaten by thieves, and a priest and a Levite, both hotshots, walked by on the other side of the road, and the Samaritan stopped to help. The Samaritan, whatever his background had been, whatever prior life experience he'd had, whatever prejudice he'd suffered at the hands or the words of faithful, if sanctimonious, Judeans in the past, this Samaritan had worked his way up to servant, probably with the help of others, certainly with the help of his faith, he'd worked his way up to compassion for all people, because all people are God's people. He'd worked his way up to servant with no loopholes. Jesus says, go and do the same. Amen.